You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 13 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Leah Henning, and with me today are regular panelists Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Nora Bautner. Hello, everyone. Hi. All right, well, let's go around and introduce ourselves for any listeners new to the program. Oh, hi, I'm Nora Bonner, as Leah said, and I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. I now live in Tallahassee, Florida, where I recently completed an MFA in creative writing, and I'm working on a novel and teaching at both Tallahassee Community College and Florida State University. Victoria? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and uh, I currently am an adjunct instructor at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, where I teach English and sociology, and uh, I'll be earning a doctorate from Florida State University in 21 days? Yes, I'm defending my dissertation exactly three weeks uh, from three weeks from yesterday, so I guess that's 20 days. A short number of days. Ooh. I'm Leah Henning. I'm previously from central Minnesota. Uh, I am now living in Chicago, Illinois, where I am studying for my MA in Renaissance and Early Modern European History at Loyola University. Um, Today, we are going to be talking about leadership, confidence, and Christian women, especially regarding Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. And uh, we're just going to start with a quick introduction to Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg is an American technology executive, and she is known for her work in the social network and internet industries. Currently, she is the chief operating officer of Facebook, And uh, she's also the first woman elected to the Facebook Board of Directors. But before that, she was Vice President of Global Online Sales and Operations at Google. And before that, she was the Chief of Staff for the United States Secretary of the Treasury. Because of her high-profile business career, Sandberg has been given many awards over the last decade, both for her skills in the business financial world and for her work in expanding the awareness of women in business. Among her awards, she has been named one of the most powerful women in business by Fortune magazine. She ranked number 19 on, of 50 women to watch by the Wall Street Journal in 2007. And she was listed this year as the ninth out of the world's 100 most powerful women by Forbes. And despite her extremely busy career life as a powerful exec, Sandberg is reportedly very happily married with two children, which is a very wonderful fact. Victoria, 
did you have something to say about the creation and introduction to Lean In? Yes. Uh, so, um, as Leah mentioned, um, Lean In is uh, is a book by Sheryl Sandberg. Um, the book comes out in March 2013, but before that, uh, the phrase Lean In really enters into the national parlance a couple of years earlier in December 2010 uh, when Sandberg gives a TED talk um, which is, is one of the most popular TED talks um, available and I would recommend uh, you watch it if you haven't seen it but I imagine a number of our listeners have. So after the book comes out in 2013 or with conjunction of, of the release of this book Sandberg also works to launch an online community, uh, leanin.org. And uh, I, I would encourage the listeners to browse around at that online community. But I'm just going to talk a little bit about the way it's set up because I think um, that'll give us some, some nice background for what the book is trying to do and also some, uh, some good criticisms of um, the things the book maybe uh, is doing and, and shouldn't be doing. So on the main page, um, there are lots of photos and images of women uh, staring directly into the camera, um, a, a lot of boldness, and there are several subheads uh, at the top of the page that you can click on. Uh, they are inspiration, education, lean-in circles, books, store, and about us. Uh, so inspiration and education um, are two of the main goals of not just the movement but the book as well. Um, you're supposed to be inspired and have an emotional connection to the goals of women being more represented in business and having more confidence in themselves. Uh, part of that inspiring goal is to educate both men and women around you about inequalities that exist. And um, one of the ways that Sandberg and the online community say that we should go about this education is through the notion of lean-in circles. And these circles are a hybrid of kind of 21st century self-help and a lot of business speak and the idea of peer mentoring. Uh, on the circles page it says, together we're better through the power of peer support circles are changing lives. Lean-in circles are small groups who meet regularly to learn and grow together. Circles are as unique as the individuals who start them but all share a common bond, the power of peer support. Women are asking for more and stepping outside their comfort zones and men and women are talking openly about gender issues for the first time. So something that's important here is that not just women are involved, but men are supporting uh, too, which is a central issue in the book that I'm sure we'll talk about more. Uh, so the other sections on the website um, are the books and store sections. Um, and I, I did say books, plural. In addition to Lean In, uh, published in 2013, there's uh, Lean In for Graduates, published uh, April 2014. So this is a kind of a brand that's expanding. Um, and in this brand, there's more than just books. In the store, you can buy lots and lots of stuff, including but not limited to baby onesies, t-shirts, hats, and travel mugs. So um, 
this is a community, it's a brand, it's broad reaching, uh, and it's also commodified in an interesting way, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. All right. And Nora? Okay, um, I'm going to talk about how the media received this book um, and some of the critiques that came about after it was released, and um, not only to the book, but also to the movement that Victoria just described. So, um, as Victoria said, uh, actually, I think it was Leah who pointed out that um, Sandberg was on a couple of top influential people lists, and she was also recognized by Oprah Winfrey as, quote, a new voice in revolutionary feminism, which kind of makes me chuckle a little bit, the words revolutionary feminism, but um, maybe we'll get back to that in a few seconds. Um, so it basically took um, the media world by storm, uh, but... Uh, some there was some backlash, and so the first uh, point that I came across was from the USA Today, uh, and there was a author Joanne Bamberger who critiqued Sandberg's movement as being a war on mommies, and uh, she also couples Sandberg with another CEO, or actually Sandberg is officially a COO, which is um, chief. What is that? Uh, I forget. Officer of Operations. There you go. And then, um, anyway, Mayor, uh, CEO, Marissa Mayor of Yahoo um, is also kind of a powerhouse in women leading the media world, I guess. And so um, she critiques them both as being uh, putting too much pressure on women to be away from the home. And so uh, Bamberger says... With the launch of Sandberg's lean-in effort and Mayor's office work-only proclamation, oh yeah, Mayor said that she doesn't allow any work at home. So there's, they're often contrasted. Um, okay, so with the launch of Sandberg's lean-in effort and Mayor's office work-only proclamation, two things are apparent. Both have forgotten about the women who came before, enabling them to land in their lofty positions in the first place. And the duo doesn't want to extend the same hand to anyone else. Instead, they've launched the latest salvo in the war on moms. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but it kind of, from reading that article, you might suspect that Bamberger would say that anyone who promotes women working would be launching a war on moms, so um, I don't know, <laughs> take that with a grain of salt. Um, Melissa Gira Grant from the Washington Post critiques uh, Lean In, uh, especially the campaign, by saying that it's elitist and leaves out most domestic workers. Uh, she critiques Sandberg for having domestic workers while have, having this movement, so she says the two aren't really compatible. Um, she says, Sandberg's understanding of the leadership so perfectly internalizes power structures of institutions created and dominated by men that it cannot conceive of women's leadership outside those narrow spaces. So basically just that the movement's too narrow. Um, it only applies to wealthy women and leaves out women of color and also domestic workers, uh, which apparently Sandberg has many working for her. Um, Maureen Dowd from the New York Times says pretty much the same thing, and except that she says that a real social movement 
can't be started from the top. It has to come from the ground up, which is kind of an interesting point. Um, then Michelle Goldberg from the Daily Beast kind of critiques all of these critiques by saying that they misunderstand the text. Um, in short, Goldberg says she's doing more than most women in corporate America. Uh, so Sandberg is doing something that other people aren't able to do, I guess, because of her position. Um, Goldberg also says that Sandberg's message isn't that all women need to be corporate executives or high-powered lawyers or political leaders. It's just that we'd be better off if more corporate executives, high-powered lawyers, and political leaders were women. So there is kind of a running theme in the book about just having visibility um, when women are able to see other women in high positions that increases their options. And that seems to be one of the main goals. So Michelle Goldberg kind of points that out. Uh, now I'm going to get to a more academic critique of the book um, from The Feminist Wire. And the critique comes from um, social activist slash feminist powerhouse Bell Hooks, who if you've come across her, she doesn't have any capitals in her name. Um, I don't know if that's significant or not, but that's what I was thinking of. Um, it's kind of a rebel move in a way. Um, she's not using capitals. Um, so what she basically says is um, that Sandberg's book represents a kind of faux feminism. And she kind of describes that um, this way. She says the book offers a simplistic description of the feminist movement based on women gaining equal rights with men. This construction of simple categories, women and men, was long ago challenged by visionary feminist thinkers, particularly individual black women and women of color. So again, like the previous critiques, um, Hooks is saying that this movement mo leaves out a lot of women, um, but she's also kind of pointing out that Sandberg doesn't really have her roots in a lot of these ideas that came from feminist thinkers, which weakens Sandberg's movement. Um, she all, so she reprimands her for not having her foundation in any feminist scholarship. Um, she goes on to say that these thinkers insisted that everyone acknowledge and understand the myriad ways race, class, sexuality, and man, many other aspects of identity and difference made explicit that there was never and is no simple homogenous gendered identity that we would call women struggling to be equal with men. In fact, the reality was and is that privileged white women often experience a greater sense of solidarity with men of the same class than with poor white women or women of color. So again, she's saying that the book leaves out a lot of people, but also she's kind of hinting there about um, the the dichotomy between uh, women and men is too simplistic in this book, Lean In, um, and in the movement, and that the there's a lot of, well, first of all, we know that gender is kind of a, at least the, the theorists have talked about gender as being a performed um, kind of part of our identity, um, and there's a lot, it's more of a spectrum than a, you know, black and white definition thing, so this Lean In book kind of ignores some of that work that was being done, some of the gender work. Um, 
But Hooke's main point was that Sandberg's model doesn't challenge the white male-dominated world. Moreover, uh, Hooke sets uh, sort of sets up Sandberg as a feminist puppet handled by the patriarchs who run the world, um, and that's why it's faux feminism. Um, she says the model Sandberg represents is all about how women can participate and run the world. Uh, but of course, the kind of world we would be running is never defined. It sounds at times like a benevolent patriarchal imperialism. So that's kind of interesting. And she calls on feminists to challenge these ideas. Um, in general, she questions, what are we leaning into exactly? And then she ends with this. Uh, she says, importantly, whether feminists or not, we all need to remember that visionary feminist goal, which is not of a woman running the world as is, but a woman doing our part to change the world so that freedom and justice, the opportunity to have an optimal well-being, can equally be shared by everyone, female and male. Which I think that's kind of, that quote to me kind of fits in with the maybe Christian feminist vision, but I'll get back to that later when I talk about um, this book in regards to Christianity. Um, but there's this kind of alternate um, vision that Hooks points out, which I think is interesting and maybe should be addressed. All right, well, thank you. Now, before we start talking about Lean In, um, why don't we go around and share uh, some personal experience that we've had with women in authority positions and how that has affected us. Uh, Victoria? Thanks, Leah, and thanks, Nora, for that really thorough discussion of um, of media reception. I know you touched on a lot of things that we'll um, talk about in more depth as our conversation continues. So um, I, I'm really glad that we decided to include this, um, this bit of personal experience. I've been thinking a lot in preparation for this show about my life and about um, the the strong women who have contributed to it, and I, I really had, um, ha had a great time thinking through that and and kind of um, linking these women to my own, um, my own desires, not just career-wise, but but personally as well. And as I was thinking back, um, I was thinking about these women and realizing that. Um, not only was I kind of raised by a series of strong women, but I was raised by a series of strong women who, uh, all of whom are single women at some point later in their adult lives. Um, and while they are single women, um, through death or divorce or both, um, in some cases, they're also working uh, traditionally pink-collar jobs. My great-grandmother um, was a single mother for most of her life, and she worked as a school teacher. My grandmother um, worked as a nurse and later in um, a less pink-collar position, hospital administration, um, was also a single mother for most of her life. Uh, my parents divorced when I was eight, so my dad um, what was around a lot, um, but my mother, um, I, I lived with my mother, so was primarily raised by her for several years, um, 
and when I was 13, moved to live with my father, who had remarried, and my stepmother, who's also a, a big um, feminist influence in my life. Um, she taught me how to not be afraid of my voice, um, both literally, like, not be afraid to talk and have opinions, and uh, metaphorically, to, like, to trust the, the voice inside my head. So I, I thought that that was a really interesting Venn diagram, this idea that I've been sort of brought up by women who um, had to be strong because they were by themselves for some portion of their adult life, not, um, you know, not having the social safety net of marriage at some point, and also who are working in jobs that are gendered and, and disempowered in interesting ways. And, and I, I think that that Venn diagram, uh, or the fact that that Venn diagram produced me, someone who um, is working in a profession that is gendered one way in lower levels and another way at higher levels, um, is particularly interesting. So uh, those are, are some thoughts there, and it also made me think about um, my views on mentoring which are, by the way, very positive. Um, listeners, uh, especially if you're a woman, but also if you're a man, get a mentor in your field. Talk to them about what success means. Listen to them. Um, mentoring is so valuable, especially for women who are underrepresented um, in their fields. Uh, my mentor is wonderful. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and name drop because I want to talk about how wonderful she is. Um, Dr. Ann Coldiron has been my graduate mentor in grad school. She's an amazing scholar and an amazing thinker. Uh, if you're interested in book history or uh, medieval literature, look her up. Really, really great stuff. But even more than that, she's just an awesome human being because she thinks of her graduate students as people first. So many professors uh, you know, look at grad students as guinea pigs to test their own research ideas out on. Uh, she doesn't. She realizes that we're students and that we're teachers and that we need professional training and interacts with us on that way, models good pedagogy, but also she understands that we're people with spouses and sometimes children and lives and is so accommodating. Uh, so that's that's been really helpful for me and that looking at students as people first is something that, uh, that I try to model in my own teaching as well. And I think I've probably just shared way too much personal stuff, but uh, those are some of my experiences with women in leadership positions. That was wonderful what you were sharing, Victoria. Um, I've also been giving a lot of consideration to this section of the podcast. And uh, I consider myself extremely blessed to have had some supportive and wonderful women in my life, whether it was in my church or as part of my education. The fact that they were so wonderful and supportive didn't necessarily mean that I did look up to them or that I wanted to emulate them. Um, most of the time, my heroes growing up and the people that I wanted to be like were actually men because I saw them doing the things that I wanted to be doing. Uh, although I enjoyed the emotional support and encouragement from the women around me. And once I went to college, I realized that I 
had to actively search out women to look up to who were connected to my career goal or had done things that I was hoping to accomplish. Again, that's not to say that I don't appreciate or admire the women who I grew up knowing or the women who are going into different fields than I am. Uh, There were actually several deaconesses in my home church that I am still in awe of because they basically run the church uh, with their love and generosity. And my mother is still the one woman that I will always try to be like uh, in my personal life um, because she did demonstrate a strength of character, uh, not through vocalization, but through silence. Um, She demonstrated to me the power of silence when I didn't know when to shut up. (laughs) Um, But it was just a rude awakening for me to leave my home and discover that more people spoke about men in roles of authority and leadership than they do about women. And I was forced to seek out what a leading woman in my field looks like. And in a way, I'm still looking for those women who are leaders in areas that I also want to enter. Uh, And it's just something that I will have to continue working on. Nora? Okay. Uh, Yeah, I I can totally relate to that. Having to look for women doing the things that you want to do, that was definitely part of my experience too. And I also think Victoria and I might have had the same great-grandmother because... I had a single uh, mother, teacher, grandma, great-grandmother in my family, too. Um, but actually, she was married three times, widowed twice. Um, but when I think about just leader women in my, I would say, family narrative, this is my father's great-grandmother. Um, I was told stories about her. I never met her, but I was told stories about her from pretty early on about how She had done things like um, she moved up to Detroit from North Carolina when she just had my grandmother. And uh, so she just the two of them. And apparently she dug out her own basement, which has always been kind of like a, I don't know, a narrative symbol in my life. You know, like, well, Grandma Constanti dug out her own basement, you know, so I can finish this paper or whatever. Um, So that has always been kind of part of my knowledge. She also would she was kind of like a domestic powerhouse. So she dug out her own basement and she um, made her Detroit yard into this kind of enormous, um, fruitful (laughs) agricultural center, which she would make all of her grandchildren, including my father, um, help her to jar, you know, raspberries for preserves and things like that and then sell them. Um, So she was, uh, my father had a lot of respect for her. And so There has been, I was raised with a lot of respect for this kind of idea of a domestic powerhouse woman, I would say. And I would say that her daughter, my grandmother, kind of always tried to live up to that. Um, She ended up being very productive in kind of domestic ways. Like she, um, she made everybody more than one quilt before she died, which is a lot of work. Um, And uh, so... 
I would say in my dad's side of the family, there has been more of a sense of um, strong women. Um, my aunts from that side of the family both were probably the first women I knew who went to graduate school or got like a higher education. Um, my mother went back to school when I was a kid. Um, when I think about my own house, I would say that our house was complementarianism in theory, but not really in practice. Um, so I heard a lot about <laughs> about how men should be leaders and how um, that, you know, if there's not one leader, then all chaos will ensue, kind of like it will be disorganized or something. So God made the man the leader. So I heard that narrative, but I didn't really see it, um, as, at least in the splitting of domestic roles. Um, my father did most of the cooking and cleaning, and he was a firefighter, which um, is like a super masculine job. <laughs> but he also, what was I going to say? He was home a lot because the firefighter schedule um, is like work a day, you're off a day, work a day, you're off three days. So I had a father at home a lot, and my mother went back to school and then worked from the home. So um, I didn't really see my father as being someone who like, did all the work and my mom did all the raising of the children. Um, so that kind of opened up for me, I think a sense of um, choices maybe, or just, um, but I also had a, I still have a brother who um, I noticed pretty early on was raised quite different than me. Um, and so he was allowed, uh, sorry, I was allowed to pursue theater which I'm going to talk about in a second, but um, I was very involved in theater growing up, but my brother was kind of, uh, he had to have a job while he was in high school. Um, and then my parent, I studied theater in college, uh, theater performance, and then my brother um, wanted to study archaeology, but was encouraged instead to do computer science. Um so it was more practical, and I think the whole point was that he would be able to provide for a family one day, and my parents didn't really have that same concern with me. Um, but I also was pretty serious about performing in the theater, so that probably played a part. Um, but I think that maybe the fact that I was a girl kind of opened up opportunities for artistic pursuits in a way that maybe my brother didn't have the same opportunities that's debatable but that's kind of how I'm seeing it um so our church had elders um not pastors it was a non-denominational small church my father was an elder and uh, they were all men and we put a lot of emphasis on teaching and it was clear that men could be teachers in the church but women couldn't um so that was kind of a struggle for me in high school and college because I knew that I wanted to that I had some of the skills to be a teacher. In fact, I have a lot of teachers on my dad's side of the family. Um, so I had a little bit of tension there about feeling whether or not I was actually a woman <laughs> because I didn't know, like, I, I didn't really want to have a family. I just wanted to kind of, I wanted to either be a performer or later a writer. Um, so I don't know. But the first time that I saw women leaders were when I was involved in the theater. Uh, I had women directors that I really liked while I was in high school um, who really inspired me. And um, all of the professors that I connected to the most in college were also women. Um, and there was one in particular, this is my time to gush about a female leader. Um, there is one, her name is Annette Masson, and she was the um, University of Michigan. She still is the the voice 
for the theater coach. And she would, she really inspired me to become a teacher because she would just like sit and tell stories with us uh, before she taught a lesson. And she would ask us to tell stories. And that really kind of shaped um, my teaching, but also just um, her stories were so awesome. Like she had been all over the world and, um, <laughs> and she had just encountered people in a way that I wanted to just kind of this wide-eyed like isn't the world amazing kind of personality and point of view that I really have tried to adopt since then um, but I will say that it wasn't until um, graduate school where I came across women who were leaders in churches um, there's a woman who is now a comp rep professor I think in Pennsylvania, um, Carrie Carsey. She's a big inspiration to me. Um, she was a female who had, well, yeah, but <laughs> she left, she left her job as a pastor to follow her husband to Miami University, um, to be a, he was working with the student athletes there. And so they joined a church that didn't allow women to be pastors. So I kind of watched her wrestle with that a little bit, but she did it in such a generous way um, that she kind of saw maybe the unity of Christ as being um, something that, like, she could put her own ego aside as far as, like, even though she's a trained pastor. Um, and so she would work with the—she did have a lot of discussions with the pastor at that church um, about the issue, which I think kind of softened him. I have no idea if she softened him or not, but she definitely was the first person to bring to my attention even the fact that, like, oh, I grew up in a church that didn't allow female pastors. It was like my, you know, the light bulb went on. Um, and then uh, here in Tallahassee, I go to a church that just, um, there's a woman who has been involved in the church since its start, started in an administrative position, but they just named her as one of the four pastors. So that's kind of been a big deal. Um, but she's also a good friend of mine. So it's been also kind of neat to see the way that she kind of balances like her female identity with, you know, notions of leadership and stuff like that. So sorry if I talk too long, but there's my life story. No, thanks, Nora. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that you shared all that with us, um, since it is your first episode as a regular uh, panelist. You didn't get to do uh, the stuff in episode one that we did when we talked about our lives. So uh, I feel like that catches you up. Thanks for that. Sweet. So uh, I'm going to start off our discussion of Lean In and uh we read chapter 11, the final chapter of the book, the central thesis of which is basically um, support and, uh, and how women are to be supported uh, in their quest for more representation and, and higher positions and power in, um, in the professional sphere. And um, Sandberg says that should happen in a couple of ways one way is that men should support women, um, that they should educate themselves about systemic inequalities in order to um, recognize their own privilege and help um, help women sort of get a leg up. And the other way is that women should support other women, um, and not just professional women supporting professional women, but Sandberg talks a lot about um, 
sort of getting rid of this mommy wars idea that um, that stay-at-home moms and uh, professional moms or stay-at-home women and professional women are at war or at odds with each other and she says we should um, we should support women's endeavors whatever they are and I, I definitely support that myself I think it's a great um, a great idea um, I, I hope that this podcast reflects that. Um, we have a few stay-at-home moms who are panelists. Uh, we try to accommodate everyone's schedule. I know uh, this is the part where I get a little meta and apologize to our listeners. Um, I know we don't post on time every two weeks. I know it's irregular sometimes. Um, I'm sure that's frustrating for some of you. It's frustrating for those of us who are scheduling too. But I, I really think that um, it's more important to the feminist mission of our show to be flexible for our panelists in that way and to realize that, you know, some of us have uh, husbands and some of us have children and most of us have uh, jobs outside the home too. And this requires, you know, a, a kind of crazy balancing act that we're all going through. So hopefully this podcast um, re- reflects uh, that complexity. But also, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the ways that Sandberg's book um, challenges social, current social notions of gender, um, and some of the ways where it's maybe Um, a little less challenging of social norms. So I I do think that um, the chapter we read and the book in general um, speak against some gender stereotypes, deals with um, the issue of women as uh, nurturers, whether this is natural or not, talks about work-life balance stuff, um, talks about, you know, whether we should even think of career and family as a balance, whether that's a good construction or not. And and the book itself, the structure of the book itself speaks to this, because each chapter is about a separate political issue, but also contains um, personal anecdotes from some women in power and some men in power. Uh, sometimes Sandberg speaks for herself, and sometimes she mentions other people. So uh, I think that that the fact that the structure of the book mirrors kind of the purpose of the book is interesting. So all in all, I do think that the book um, is positive and and challenging some uh, maybe more regressive social norms, but uh, I am not all in for the leaning in. Uh, I'm not in 100%, and here's why. Um, Because... I, I feel like it doesn't do enough sometimes to to challenge the existing system. Uh, feminist critic Susan Faludi um, says that the movement isn't primarily grounded in feminism, but that it's primarily grounded in something she calls corporatism, which is the idea that society should be organized by corporations or corporate interest groups. She says... Uh, Lenin treats women not as human beings with lives, but as, quote, marketable consumer objects. Uh, I don't think this is an unreasonable criticism of the book or the movement. Uh, and it that corporatism idea is something that I'm super troubled by personally, uh, particularly given the current political climate. 
Uh, we're a couple of years past the Citizens United uh, court ruling. Uh, corporations are basically people who have a lot of political power. Um, Nora and I mentioned that we both um, went to and worked at Florida State University, uh, who just put forth um, a politician with a lot of business connections and no academic experience as their president. So this kind of corporate control is, is sort of filtering everywhere and is scary. So I do, uh, I do question this feminist movement that is so closely tied to working within um, a corporate system that has so often marginalized women. Like, I, I keep coming back to the second wave and the liberal radical split and this idea, like, at what point is it beneficial to find inroads within the pre-existing system, and at what point is that system too patriarchal or too corrupted by other means to support women at all? So, those are my questions about the movement. I don't have answers for them yet. Uh, but I'm going to keep asking those questions. All right. Well, thank you, Victoria. Nora, do you have any comments about how Lenin might fit with Christianity? Yeah. Um, I guess I'll start talking about the tension I have with Lenin versus, I guess, what I would say is my own experience with uh, Christ Christianity. Um kind of going off of what Victoria said, as on the surface, uh, my reaction to the book when thinking about Christianity is kind of this tension with corporatism and um, how it's kind of hard for me to connect that to Jesus's ministry, especially when I consider some of the teachings that he gives specifically about money. Um, he says you can't serve God and money at the same time. Um, you have to choose one. He says that it's easier for a... Uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle than for um, a rich person to, you know, have a place in the kingdom of heaven. So those two things are pretty harsh. And um, actually, this morning, I read um, that part where somebody asked Jesus about what to do about taxes. And um, there's a point where it says that the um, Pharisees are trying to trip him up and make him submit to government authority which I thought was really interesting, just like thinking about lean in um, and the way that Jesus handles that, where he says, uh, let me see a coin. And then he says, oh, the um, the face on this coin is Caesar's. So give Caesar um, what's Caesar's and give God what's God's. And so kind of that dichotomy again, but it also kind of came to my attention how Jesus like had to go to somebody else to get a coin like he didn't just pull one out of his pocket <laughs> so it's almost like at least as a figure um of god it seems almost like he's saying the picture of god we have there is god doesn't really um i don't know this is my marxist interpretation i guess but um that god doesn't really want to deal with money in fact he has somebody else deal with money and that doesn't end too well um, in his story. Um, so those are all my hangups as far as being a woman in the corporate system. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to uh, connect that kind of ambition it, it requires to rise up in a corporate system with um, Jesus's commands to serve and um, think of other people first and things like that. But all of that said, 
I would say that there's still a lot in Lean In. Um, and I also want to say that um, later on in Acts, we have this uh, woman, Julia, who is this kind of businesswoman who ends up supporting Paul's ministry, which I think is kind of an example of how, you know, God can use somebody's business savvy. Um, so it's not like God just like excludes all the rich people or something, um, which is sometimes a comforting thought when I'm in my throes of student poverty. But um, but the, the reality is that God, in my experience, has been able to use everything and a lot of ministries depend on people who are business savvy. So I think with that as a background, I will say the few things of the book that really did register with my experience as being a female who's trying to figure out her salvation with God or work out her salvation with God and fear and troubling. Um, so the first idea is uh, in the first chapter, she talks about fear. Um, she says fear is at the base of so many of the barriers that women face, fear of not being liked, fear of making the wrong choice, fear of drawing a negative attention, fear of overreaching, fear of being judged, fear of failure, and the holy trinity of fear, the fear of being a bad mother, wife, and daughter. And I think that's really, um, I think that's really true and it kind of connects to um, this whole discussion of women's confidence levels being less than men also. Um, I think men also deal with fear, but I like the fact that she um, addresses self-doubt. And I like her overall approach of just kind of you do your thing, you know, you do your work and then you see where it gets you. If you do your work, then you'll be recognized. And um, even though it, I still feel like there's a little of attention, like uh, a little bit of tension. There's a part where Jesus says, like, when you go to a party, sit at the lowest seats and then somebody will ask you to come up. I think you could also maybe think of that as, you know, don't be like focused on your own ego and don't be focused on what other people think of you. Just let do your thing. I don't know. This is one way to loose way to interpret that kind of idea. Um, so the fear thing I liked, um, later in, on in the book, she has this whole, in the chapter called Think Globally, Act Communally. Um, she says, think about how your ideas help other people, not just you. So there is kind of a selfless idea, um, that does run through. So I guess you can see that I think that selflessness is a part of my Christianity. Um, but there's also like, I think that's something that's hard for women to organize it, uh, with their own walks with Jesus is like, where do you draw the line with uh, being discriminated against and being assertive and not, you know, um, but also n not putting yourself over other people. Um, so kind of trying to keep yourself part of a movement that helps all women and all humans rather than something that's selfish. But I, I saw little glimpses of that in, uh, Sandberg's philosophy. Um, she, where she really kind of struck a chord with me is uh, when she talks, um, this is actually in chapter 10, um, she's, she makes a point that men who are in traditional marriages have a harder time recognizing women, recognizing women leaders. And this struck a chord with me about why it's taken the church so long to allow women to teach and to participate in some of the leadership roles. Um, and so I think that, um, for me, I also, 
uh, I had a discussion with my father not too long ago about the fact that women didn't teach at his church, and he said, oh, well, if they wanted to, they could. Nobody's really, there's no doctrine that says they can't in our church. And I said, well, they've never seen it, so how, it's, it doesn't seem like an option if we haven't seen it. And so I think that's the case with a lot of women um, when it comes to leadership, but also just um, being strong um yeah, yeah, just leaders. I mean, because we see lots of examples of women being um, strong Christians. I think every Christian I know knows at least three strong Christian women. Um, but I think that the, the idea of leadership as being an option is, needs to be more visible um, in order to be more possible, if that makes sense. Um, and then the final thing that really I felt resonated with my Christian um, experience is just this whole queen bee attitude that um, Sandberg is trying to, uh, you know, get rid of in her book. So she talks about, um, you know, women keeping other women down, which Victoria already mentioned. And um, I think that this is a problem within, you know, the church. I think that especially that ten the mommy wars kind of tension, um, feeling like, uh, we need to validate ourselves by putting each other down or judging each other. I think this is a problem with all Christians, but it just seems I will, you know, confession time here. I have a, I'm much more judgmental of other women than I am of men. Um, oh, absolutely. And, me too. And yeah. it's awful. And it's something <laughs> yeah. I really don't like about myself. Yeah. So I really loved her attention to that. Um, and just being, uh, and just, I think that needs to be recognized, you know, that, you know, who are we, who do we criticize more? And so, um, I also know that, um, my father who is open to women teaching, he said, uh, my mother is like voraciously against it, or I don't know if she is now, but she was like a few years ago. And so when I was, would have those conversations with her, there was more tension. So it's like, and I think it's my experience that, um, one thing that I wish that Christians and everybody would just get rid of is this tendency to have to justify your own experience with um, criticizing people who don't share your experience or who, you know, like I have to justify my choices by suddenly making a law out of my choice that if you didn't follow this choice, then somehow you are a lesser human being, um, which I think that she addresses here. A lot. I think I think Sandberg has a lot of generosity towards mothers who choose to stay at home, which makes the um, Mommy Wars uh, article a little bit ludicrous um, because she does. I mean, she she commends them as the last thing she does in the book. She says, I'm, I'm really glad that there are mothers who are who are helping out in my kid's school and stuff like that. So um, a, she has a generous spirit that I think that Christians, um, both men and women, can definitely learn from definitely um that was something that i noticed in reading lean in was uh how she does at least make some overtures to people outside of the workforce outside of the business class that she's from that uh makes what she says more applicable to women in general yeah, and something that I noticed about that specifically is that she makes a point of calling um, 
the work of stay-at-home mothers work and not just work but hard work um i i was really touched by that passage that nora mentioned about the um the who she calls a tireless volunteer at her daughter's school and she says this woman's hard work pours into the community so i think even on a sort of word choice level that that's uh that's really important absolutely well um shall we move on and i believe victoria you were going to respond to another article that we were reading for this week uh who you calling brusque Right. Uh, so, who you calling brusque is an article on um, Christianity Today's uh, blog for women. Uh, I, I hate the word lady blog, so I'm not using that word. Uh, hermeneutics, and the blog is written uh, by the managing print editor of Christianity Today, Caitlin Beatty, and. Um, gets its title from a series of adjectives used to describe Jill Abramson, who was the first female executive director for the New York Times. She was fired in May of this year, and some people think that her firing was a sexist move. Uh, here's Beatty on that. So why did Abramson get fired? The theories are still flying. Many of them raise questions of unequal pay, despite a statement from the Times' publisher that Abramson was out-earning predecessor Bill Keller. Others note her failed attempt to hire another woman as co-managing editor, a move opposed by the new and first African-American executive director, Dean Baquette. Still others fixate on her supposed pushy, brusque, mercurial manner. Whatever the theory, it's hard not to read the story as gendered, as a story not simply about a leader, but about a female leader, one who seemingly fell off the glass cliff. So, um... So Beatty is arguing that we talk about women in leadership using different words than we talk about men. That when women are strong, they're strong in negative ways. They're brusque. They're mercurial. Uh, and then she thinks about these gendered assumptions regarding appropriate leadership from a personal perspective and then a broader Christian perspective. Uh, she says, as editor for Christianity Today, that she's had similar conversations with her colleagues, that she's been portrayed in similar language, and that it, it uh, doesn't make her feel really great. Um, and then she tries to look to the Bible for comfort in that. Uh, and now I'm quoting Beatty again. We'll never know all the factors in the firing, but at the least we can glean from it a lesson about perceiving other Christians and ourselves rightly. Women leaders who might doubt their abilities can first rest in their identity in Christ. They are God's workmanship, here she cites Ephesians 2.10, and God's co-workers, 2 Corinthians 6.1, the salt and light of the earth, Matthew 5.13, and ministers of reconciliation in their spheres of influence, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Uh, that section was really encouraging to me personally. I think it's really hard um, to find the balance between confidence appropriate to an authority position and rudeness, especially when we often feel as women that we have to compensate for these pre-existing assumptions about female authority. Um, I, I know that I deal with this balancing act in the classroom a lot. Um, but Beatty doesn't let women completely off the hook here either. Uh, this is the final paragraph of her article. Fun fact. 
women are humans, which means they are capable of being as sinfully arrogant as any man. You won't hear me giving a pass to brusquely behaving women, myself included. But for the time being, we're still not operating on a level discipleship field. The sin we tend to overlook in men we highlight in women. Until our perception of others grows less gendered and more gospeled, I'm willing to bet that women just want to get things done. Uh, so what did you ladies think about that article? Um, how did you think Beatty did at uh, incorporating a Christian perspective into this conversation? Um, I guess I'll go. Uh, <laughs> I really liked the point that you um, that you brought light to about um, having our confidence being from Christ. I think that's what makes our journey a little different. Um, I don't know. That was kind of my my reaction to it was just like that reminder of, you know, cause the article, the other article you read, the confidence gap is all about how women, um, don't have enough confidence, but it's kind of like, I think that we have this identity in Christ that should bring confidence to us that we often forget, um, because of the way that, um, maybe the, that our church societies formulate our identities, but that doesn't negate the, um, the truth of, you know, we are who God says we are and not who other people say we are. So that was my reaction. Yeah, mine was a bit along those lines. Um, growing up in a conservative Christian area, uh, I, I actually was labeled some of these things. I was labeled bossy sometimes, and it was something that I struggled with growing up as like a preteen and teenager on how I was supposed to behave um, within the church, uh, let alone um, in a professional setting. Um, so hearing or reading uh, this article about how women can be leaders and how that language doesn't actually define us was very enlightening and um, encouraging to me. Also, it pointed out that I was continuing that tradition where I was looking at other women, women within my family or my friends who uh, I was judging based on how bossy they were or something very similar, even though I respected them for doing the things that they were doing in my head, I was still labeling them. Well, it's time for our final segment where we pass on and share recommendations for our listeners who want to learn more about the subject. Nora, if you would like to start. Sure. Um, I'm going to recommend Brene Brown's book called "It Was." I Thought It Was Just Me. Uh, Brene Brown is a PhD. Uh, she has a PhD in either sociology or social work. I can't remember. Uh, maybe it's psychology. But anyway, the premise of this book is that she's examining shame, uh, the concept of shame among women, and um, how to solve the problem of shame. And when I was reading Sandberg's book, I was thought a lot about um, Brene Brown's work with both the idea of vulnerability and shame. Um, and she addresses a lot about the relationships between women 
and how um how you know the power plays between them and things like that um so i don't know i thought it was just me is the name of the book um is that enough information about it <laughs> yeah sure that's great thanks for that recommendation uh i have two recommendations one um more directly connected to um, our discussion this week and one a little less so. Uh, my first recommendation is that our listeners check out the Ban Bossy campaign, um, which is, is connected to the Lean In movement and was started by Sheryl Sandberg and, and some other powerful women. And um, Leah mentioned that this is a word we use to... Uh, to kind of shame young girls who talk too loudly or talk too much or, um, you know, overstep those kinds of gendered leadership boundaries. And uh, the Ban Bossy campaign is to draw attention to the fact that we do gender this language um, about people in leadership and we do it very early. So check out the Ban Bossy campaign. And my, uh, my second recommendation is... Um, a documentary I saw a few months ago about someone who we've talked about on this podcast before. Um, the documentary is called The Punk Singer. Uh, it's about Kathleen Hanna, a famous riot girl and former lead singer of Bikini Kill, current lead singer of the band The Julie Ruin. And uh, so the documentary um, covers this liberal radical split question that I mentioned earlier because... Um, Riot Girl is, of course, um, a movement that is both within punk music and separates itself from it. So that's interesting uh, because Hannah is carving out a female, in some cases all-female space, in her male career. Um, the other really interesting thing, I talked about mentorship earlier. The other really interesting thing about the documentary for me is how intergenerational uh, the documentary's conversation about feminism is. Um, there are kind of early punk singers from the 80s talking to um, 14, 15 year old uh, feminists now, and I, I thought that that was a really uh, cool conversation too. So, those are my recommendations. All right, and I just have a few recommendations. Um, first of all, I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to uh, just look into Lean In. It is a very interesting read. There is a graduate's edition um, for recent college grads uh, where it's got a bit more edited information um, about how to enter the workforce um, but in addition to that, uh, an article that was mentioned earlier that we actually read for this week was The Confidence Gap, which was an article shown in The Atlantic by Katie Kay and Claire Shipman. Uh, and I'd also like to encourage listeners to check out women's TED Talks because there are a lot of leading women uh, from all over the world who share their experiences and have a, a lot of very interesting things to say about women in the world today, whether it is in positions of leadership or um, political changes. So thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. 
We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes from this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Zach Schmidt is our intern. For Nora Bonner and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Leah Henning. Tune in in two weeks for our discussion of feminist feminism at Christian colleges. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>